All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. This is what it says, but if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him, for to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are, whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For indeed, I have forgiven anything. I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And then one more scripture, John chapter 14, verse 30. Uh, Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today that you are with us by the power of your word and spirit in the name of your son, Jesus. And I pray that you speak mightily to us, grant us understanding, and give us the resolve to respond to your word today. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that passage that we read 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11. What's happening there? Paul is addressing a situation of church discipline that goes all the way back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes to the church and says, the stuff I'm hearing about y'all is not good. I'm hearing that there is rampant, gross, and unrepentant sexual immorality happening in your church, and y'all are just okay with that. Well, that's not okay. And then Paul singles out one gentleman in the church who was engrossed in the epitome of sexual impropriety and sexual immorality, and not only was he engaged in it, but he was boasting about it, and the church was not doing anything about it. And so Paul says, y'all won't deal with it, so I've dealt with it. Well, how have I dealt with it? I delivered him over to Satan. Paul says, in the spirit, I've delivered him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul might be saved on the day of Jesus. So now that I've dealt with him, I need you guys to to just obey me. This isn't going to make sense to you. You're not going to like it, but put him out of your church. And so they obeyed. And you got to understand that this was not just some random person. This was a young man in the church who was dearly loved by the church, deeply entrenched relationally in the church, but engaged in gross and unrepentant sin. And Paul told the church, put him out. So they put him out. But it caused great grief and great sorrow to the church. It was the hardest thing that that church ever did. It was super painful, but they knew they had to do it, and so they did it. Now Paul in 2 Corinthians readdresses that situation and he's basically saying, you guys did good, you obeyed. But guess what? The discipline worked. 
See, the goal of putting him out the church was not to reject him forever, but to facilitate his repentant heart. You see, he was not repentant in the church, so you have to stop trying to be the church to someone who actually doesn't want church. Put him out of the church and let God deal with him. Well, now you put him out of the church, God has dealt with him, and he's repentant. So here's what I want you to do. Take him back. Forgive him. Comfort him. Receive him. And Paul says, by the way, in the spirit, just like in the spirit I dealt with him and put him out, well, in the spirit I've already forgiven him in the presence of Christ. And I forgave him for your sakes. It's done. And then he ends by saying this. Y'all need to do this so that Satan does not take advantage of us, it says in the NKJV. But in another translation, it says that Satan may not outwit us. And then he ends by saying, for we are not ignorant of his devices. (coughs) We're not ignorant of his devices. This sermon series is going to be an extended reflection on that last word. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, devices. Paul looks at this situation and says, Satan's trying to outwit us here. After we've done God's will, after we've stood for righteousness, after we've done the right thing, Satan is still going to try to outwit us. He outwits you when you do God's will and he outwits you when you don't do God's will. He doesn't give up because you're obedient. He doesn't stop coming after you because you were, uh, you, you overcame something. He doesn't, he simply looks for a different way to come at you. And now that we've done God's will, Paul says, we must continue to do God's will and forgive and receive so that Satan does not outwit us because we're not ignorant of his devices. That word devices in the Greek is noemata, noemata. And the word literally means strategic thoughts or cunning plans, strategic thoughts or cunning plans or tactical schemes, strategic thoughts or cunning plans or tactical schemes. Paul says, we are not ignorant of his strategic thoughts. Satan thinks very strategically about how to destroy you. He's not haphazard. He doesn't fly by the seat of his pants. Whatever Satan does in your life, you better believe he's been planning it for a long time. He's very patient. He'll plant a seed in your heart when you're eight years old that he knows won't germinate till you're 38. And he will wait for 30 years to destroy you. His thoughts towards you are very strategic, and he has cunning plans. He plans for ways to confuse you, to get around your, 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 your guards, to make sure you don't see any red flags so that he can destroy you before it's too late, before you recognize it. But Paul says, we're not ignorant of his devices. We, I, can see it, I can see it plain as day, Paul says. It's here, here's one of his devices. We've got to deal with this this way because otherwise Satan will outwit us. Now, when we talk about the strategic thoughts of Satan, it's the antithesis 
of the strategic thoughts of God. Jeremiah 29, 11, God says, I know the plans that I have for you, plans of good, not of evil, to prosper you and not to harm you. God says, I am thinking strategically about how to guide you into blessing and prosper and increase your life, how to bless you and not curse you. God says, I'm thinking about that. I'm constantly thinking. I'm constantly looking at your life and saying, hmm, how do I bless him? How do I bless Joseph? How do I, how do I lead him into a higher level of bless, blessing? Hmm, I got this new blessing for Bagus and Sherry. How do I get them there? How do I steer them there? I'm constantly thinking about how to lead you into to the good purpose and the good plan that I have for your life. But Satan also has strategic thoughts for you. He's, hmm, how do I destroy him? How do I, I've got this plan for them, this destruction awaiting them. How do I lead them there? How do I guide them there? And what he uses are what we call devices. Now, the thing we need to understand is that Satan is not as stupid as we think he is. Jim Collins wrote a book called Good to Great years ago. And it's about companies moving from being a good good company to becoming a great company. And he talks about this metaphor of the fox and the hedgehog. And he says, if you watch foxes, foxes are very cunning, but they do something different every day. So every day, foxes, they try to hunt hedgehogs. And every day, the fox wakes up and comes up with a new idea about how to attack that hedgehog today. But the hedgehog, on the other hand, only can do one thing. The hedgehog, when he senses danger, he curls into a ball and spikes come out every direction. So the fox does many things. The hedgehog does one thing. And the hedgehog wins every time because the hedgehog has found the one thing that works and he simply has to repeat it over and over again. Listen, what you need to understand today is that Satan is not a fox. He's a hedgehog. And if you think he wakes up every day and tries something different with you, you're ignorant. Because if you would take a step back and look at your life, you'd realize that he only does a handful of things to you. And they work. So he does them over and over and over and over again. And that's what a device is, isn't it? A device is a mechanism that when you engage it, creates or generates a consistent result. That's what a device is. It is a mechanism that generates a consistent result. When you take out your phone, you push a button, it makes a call. It doesn't make coffee. You know when you push that button on your phone, it's going to make a call. It will produce a consistent result. The enemy knows for some of y'all that all he's got to do is push one button and he activates your pride. Pushes another button and he activates your hatred. Pushes another button and you become violent. Pushes another button and you're despondent and you think God doesn't love you. He looks at, and he knows you only have four or five buttons, and all he does is wake up in the morning and go, boop, boop, very consistent. 
And what empowers him is you just can't seem to wake up and realize that he's doing the same thing to you at the same time of day, every day, all day. And it works every time. Now, John 14, 30. This is the vision of this whole series. John 14, 30. Jesus says, the ruler of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me. Did you hear that? The ruler of this world is coming. Let him come. He ain't got nothing in me. There's no buttons in me that he can push to get any, any results. He's got no devices that work on me. There's no buttons that he, can, he can't get any results out of me. He can do nothing to steer me into his plan. I don't care how powerful or smart he is. I'm so aware of his devices that there's nothing he can do in me. That's the vision. That's the vision. That like The Christian life is about becoming like Christ. Because I know some of y'all immediately thought, well, that's Jesus, of course. You know, Jesus, of course, Jesus would say the devil has nothing in me. Yes, the Christian life is about becoming like Christ. Christ likeness is the goal. Not church attendance, not scripture memory. Christ likeness is the goal. Church attendance is a mechanism of Christ likeness. Scripture memory is a mechanism of Christ likeness. Prayer is a mechanism of Christ likeness. Worship is a mechanism of Christ likeness. It's about becoming like Christ. But when we're talking about dealing with those buttons that the enemy would push, we're talking about character development. And character development is not and does not function the same as divine healing or deliverance. Character development is a third category of the work of the Spirit in our lives. Let me help you understand. Divine healing happens often instantaneously. When God goes to heal you of a sickness, he heals you in a moment. Jesus did it through the laying on of hands or through the speaking of his word. Deliverance is a crisis event. It's a collision of kingdoms, and it happens in a moment. Christ spoke to demons and commanded them to leave, and they left. But he never laid hands on a liar and healed him of his lying. Never commanded thievery to, to leave a person who was a thief. When you're talking about character development, it doesn't happen at an altar. There's not enough oil in the world to pour on your head and develop your character into the image of Christ. Could put enough oil on you to fry you like catfish and you still would need to be sanctified for just as long. And this is the problem is what we tend to do when we recognize a character deficiency in ourselves, which is really just a button or a device that the enemy can use to produce a consistent result. The first thing we do is I need somebody to pray for me. I need to go to the altar and let somebody lay hands on me. I need to speak in tongues a little bit and fall on the floor and roll around. All you're getting is lint in your hair. You ruffled up your clothes, you said a few shondos, and you went home and you did it again. 
Why? Because Christ's likeness is not imparted through the laying on of hands. It is imparted through incremental daily fellowship with Jesus over months and years and decades. It's about making a decision. I'm going to walk with Jesus until he takes this thing away from me. I'm going to walk with Jesus until he takes this button out of me. I'm going to walk with Jesus, which means... That when someone is dealing with a character issue, and we all are, the only difference is some of us know how to keep it to ourselves more, more efficiently than others. The goal is to help that person walk with Jesus until they become like him in that area of their lives. And we're supposed to do that in community. But I want us to get the vision of what that looks like. Where it's not that the enemy doesn't have any devices, he just doesn't have any that work on you. This is the goal. And in order to do that, I want us to consider the temptations of Christ that we see in Matthew chapter 4, because I think we don't understand why he went into the wilderness and what the significance of those three temptations were. Christ spends, and and this is in Matthew chapter 4, Christ spends 40 days in the wilderness. Why 40 days? Shout it out. Tell me. Why 40 days? What do the 40 days signify? The 40 years wandering of the Israelites in the wilderness. The Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness because of their unbelief. Because they found themselves in the wilderness and Satan just starts pushing buttons. And they just started, God doesn't love us. God, we're hungry. God doesn't care about us. We're tired. Go back to Egypt. The enemy was pushing all kinds of buttons. Jesus spends a day for every year that the Israelites spent in the wilderness. And he fasts, no food and no water. Children, do not try this at home. There were two 40-day fasts in the Bible. Both of them were divine you do, not, you do not wake up. I'm, I'm talking about 40-day absolute fasts. No food, no water. You don't wake up in the morning and decide to do that. Only God tells you to do that. And if, you're, if you try it, you think God told you to do it and you're dying, guess what? God did not tell you to do it. So just drop that. Say, I was wrong. Go get something to eat. Now, of course, 99.9% of you are not in danger of that. Because you can't fast 45 minutes without thinking, this isn't the will of God. I can't function. I've got to go to work. There's no way I can do this. I'm just not cut out for fasting. After he had fasted 40 days, the scripture said, and afterward he was hungry. That's a significant point because... When you, if you were to go on an absolute fast, the first thing the body does is start breaking down all of your fat cells. Some of us can fast a lot longer than others. And it's not till your fat cells are depleted that starvation begins. But most of us, we go three hours, I'm starving. No, you're, you, you wouldn't be starving for about 40 days. And some of the more skinny, you know, uh, um, petite ones among us, you know, maybe 10 days or 11 days or 
15 days or something like that. It's different for every person. So what happens when you do an absolute fast is after about seven days, the hunger pains go away and strength returns. And you actually, in the middle of the fast, you actually feel like you could do this indefinitely. I remember the longest fast I did, I, in the middle of it, I thought, I can do this for the rest of I don't, I don't need food. <laughs> God has taken me so high in the spirit, I'm beyond food. I have meat to eat that you know not of. But you hit a point in the fast where the hunger returns. That's when starvation is beginning to set in. By the end of that fast, I was bedridden, and I literally felt like I was dying. It's like, okay, I'm going to die. <laughs> I'm going to die. My wife said, you are not going to die. I still see a little fat over there. <laughs> Let the spirit work, honey. Just let him work. <laughs> Look at this. When the hunger returns, that means you're in starvation. After 40 days, he was hungry, the scripture says. Meaning he's now in starvation mode. When you are in starvation, your body has no more fat cells to consume. It means that your body is now eating itself. Your body is consuming living cells. First, it eats all your muscle tissue. Then it starts eating your organs. Jesus is in literal starvation, and that's when the enemy came to tempt him. Which means he intentionally under the leading and guidance of the Holy Spirit, put himself in a place of absolute and abject hopelessness, in a sense. Because when you're in that place, you've got no physical strength. Your body is literally feeding on itself. You're at the edge of death. Now the devil comes to tempt him. Because, by the way, two of the enemy's devices are tiredness and hunger and then if you add to that a little bit of hopelessness or despair that is the trifecta the device is not the temptation the device triggers the temptation that's what you need to understand Satan's devices are not your temptations Satan's devices are buttons he pushes to trigger your temptations and he waits until the device becomes active in your life. Then he pushes the button, and that button pushes you into the temptation. And now that you're hungry and tired and in despair, your likelihood of falling to that temptation is very high. But Jesus, in this weakest of human states, wiped out tired. Literally in starvation. And there's no hope in sight. Now Satan comes to tempt him. And what's the first thing he tempts him with? Turn these stones to bread. What's that temptation? Stop trying to wait for your father. Stop saying God's going to provide for me when it's time for me to eat. Stop saying God's going to send me a husband when the time is right. Stop saying God's going to send me a, a wife when the time is right. Turn these stones to bread means provide for your own needs. And 
shoot, you got a good excuse. You're starving and you're tired. And you need, you have a need. Boop. And 99.9 believers said, yeah, Satan, I think you're right. But Jesus says, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. No, thank you, Satan. I will not make provision for myself. I'm still going to depend on the Father to make provision for me. He may not be giving me physical bread right now, but he's giving me spiritual bread. And I don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Where does that come from? Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and following. And what was happening when that word came to them? They were in the wilderness. He had been meditating on that verse for 40 days, knowing when this thing's over, I'm going to be so tired and I'm going to be so hungry. What's going to sustain me? What's going to strengthen me? What's going to cover that button so that when the enemy pushes, I don't fall into that temptation. I'm going to meditate on this word day and night. I don't care how tired I am. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He was ready. So the enemy takes him to the top of the temple. Throw yourself down if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God. In all three temptations, he questions his identity. If you're the son of God, if you're a Christian, if God really loves you, if, if you truly believe, if you're really a child of God, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus says, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 16, something or another. (laughs) Third temptation, takes him to a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world. The second temptation was a temptation to be reckless. The temptation not to do your part just to expect that God's part covers it all. It's like driving with no seatbelt. It's like not taking the medicine when the doctor prescribed it. God's going to take care of me. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Takes him to the top of the temple, shows him all the kingdoms of the world. Bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these. Jesus says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And when he overcame that third temptation, the enemy fled, waiting for a more opportune time. That's what it said. The temptations required a device because Satan does not tempt you any time, does he? In the middle of a worship service, when you're in the spirit, does he tempt you to cuss somebody out? No. He waits till you've worked a 12-hour shift You haven't had anything to eat. You worked right through lunch. You're on the way home. The traffic is bad. You get home. The house is a mess. Your husband's watching TV and the kids are running wild. Now you're ready to cuss somebody out. (laughs) And see, this is the, this is the thing. This is what we, you know, it's funny when I watch, I watch, I used to watch a lot of hood movies. I 
I have some commentary because there's something cultural in ghetto culture or what's the right word for it? That's not a good word anymore. Whatever you call it. I just call it ghetto culture. If somebody disrespects you, you are obligated to deal with that person. You are obligated. Follow me. If somebody disrespects you and you don't do anything, there's a name that they call you that I cannot repeat here in the pulpit. But that's what you are. It used to be you're a punk. But it's, it's become harsher. Why? Because somebody disrespected you, you did not respond, and you were obligated. You were culturally obligated. And when you watch, it's like so many murders happen because somebody felt obligated to kill, to, to kill someone because they disrespected them. And they were obligated by this culture that says, if anyone disrespects you, this is the way you must respond. And you, I, I watch these stories where somebody, some young kid threw away their life knowing they were going to throw away their life. Spend the rest of their life in prison. Why? Because somebody disrespected them and there was a friend next to him going, you going to take that? Oh, you going to let him talk to you like that? Wow, you ain't going to do nothing? Man, if somebody talked to me like that. And so now you're like, yeah, that's right. I'm not going to let nobody talk to me like that. And now all of a sudden that, but listen, if there's anything in your life where you feel obligated to respond in a certain way, then the enemy knows that in order to destroy you, all he has to do is provoke someone to push that button. And then you have to respond that way. You are culturally obligated to throw your life away. You know, there's a lot of ghetto Christians. Matter of fact, I'd say a lot of us in this room are ghetto Christians and we don't know it. Because there's areas in your life where you feel obligated to respond in certain ways. And afterwards you say, well, I had to do it because she said this. Well, I had to say that because he said this. Well, if he hadn't have done this, I wouldn't have done that. Every marital conflict comes down to, if you hadn't have said this, then I wouldn't have said that. Well, I said this because you said that. And what you're literally saying is, I was obligated to disobey God. I was obligated to forget that I belong to Christ. I was obligated to be unloving and unforgiving. I was obligated. And the enemy is laughing his head off because you subscribe to a culture that makes it so easy for him to destroy you at will. He wakes up in the morning, says, you know what? I'm just going to push this button of misunderstanding and then just watch him destroy themselves. And he sits back eating popcorn, just watching you. You seen Mr. and Mrs. Smith where the, the organization made them think that they were trying to kill each other even though they weren't? So they came home and literally tried to kill each other and they took every gun in their house and they're shooting at each other. And the organization's just sitting back watching, eating popcorn. Let's watch them kill each other. That's what happens in marriage. That's what the enemy does. 
He just fires a few shots at you and makes you think it was your spouse and then just watches you go at each other because you're obligated. You're obligated. Jesus says, I'm not obligated to do nothing. Somebody curses me, I'm going to love them. Because to be a son of my father, I'm obligated to love my enemies. You see, this is what Christ's likeness is about. It's shifting your obligation from the world to the kingdom. Shifting your obligation from the world to the kingdom so that you're obligated to bless those who curse you. You're obligated to pray for your enemies. You're obligated to do good to those who spitefully use you. You're obligated. Why? Because that's how your father is and he is your culture. Come on, somebody. You see, the Christian life is not, and Dallas Willard says this, the Christian life is not about doing what Jesus said. The Christian life is about becoming the kind of people who do what Jesus said as a matter of course. Of course I love my enemies. Jesus is my Lord. His father is my father. I've been adopted into his family, and there's a family culture. And he says, I spent so much time with them that I hear his word saying, this is what we do in this house. We love our enemies. Jesus says, the prince of this world, the ruler of this world's coming. Let him come. He's got nothing in me. Got nothing in me. You want one more example? And then we'll close it up because I've been talking for a long time. All right. I know you didn't want it, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. What happened to Eve? What happened to Eve at the tree? What was Satan's goal? Satan's goal was to successfully tempt her to eat from the tree. But what was his device? His device was deception. He says, if I can deceive her, then I can tempt her. And if I can tempt her, then I can destroy her. Satan's deception came before her temptation, meaning had she not been susceptible to deception, then she could not have been susceptible to temptation. Temptation requires deception. That's better than your response. Amen. But what made Eve susceptible to deception? Why did he go after Eve and not Adam? And it's not because the woman is the weaker vessel and all of that stuff. He knew he was going out of the way. No, the woman is actually the stronger in so many ways. Throughout the Old Testament, when God spoke to men, he called them twice. Abraham, Abraham. <laughs> he called Sarah. He said, Sarah. Only had to call her name once. <laughs> and then he said to Abraham, the best, the best advice, listen to your wife, Abraham. Anyway, it's another sermon. In Eve, there was curiosity mixed with confusion that made her susceptible to deception, that made her susceptible to temptation. The curiosity mixed with confusion is what Satan put his finger on in the deception. 
What did he say? Did God really say that? Did God really say you're going to surely die? She's like, yeah, I've been wondering about that. That part just never really made sense to me. Because, I mean, it don't make sense that if I just eat this piece of fruit, I'm going to die. And Adam told me that God said that, but I always wondered, did Adam get that right? Because, you know, I mean, he makes a lot of mistakes. He could have missed that, you know. I mean, you know, he can't get directions right on the freeway. I always got to tell him, what the, is that this exit? Maybe this is one of those areas where I need to help him get it right. And the serpent's like, yeah, exactly. Adam got it wrong. Because, I mean, look, God didn't say you'll surely die. No, God knows in the day you eat of it, you'll become like him. God actually is holding out something from you. There was curiosity. I wonder what that fruit tastes like. There's confusion. Now, why would God say don't eat from that fruit? And Satan goes, bingo, I've got a device that works on that. It's called deception. And he pushes the button and it produces temptation. You see, so often the only question that we ask is how do I survive my temptations? How do I overcome my temptations? God wants to take you beneath your temptations to the buttons that the enemy pushes that propel you into your temptations. If God could reveal those buttons and what those buttons are called are vices. The enemy's devices require you and I to have vices. You see, if I don't have any vices then he doesn't have any devices that work on me. His devices only work on vices. And so he's searching your heart and looking for vices. Oh, there's a little greed. How am I going how am I going to exploit that? There it is. Oh, she doesn't really trust God. And she don't trust her husband. And God spoke to her husband. Can't go to Adam. God spoke to him directly. If, she, if he went to Adam and said, did God really? Say, yes, he really did. He said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. But did God really say that? Yes. <laughs> he really said that. <laughs> Eve hadn't heard from God directly. And now she either has to trust that her husband has heard from the Lord and to trust that what God said is true or she can divide herself from her husband. And this is not a sermon about wives submit to your husbands as under the Lord. <laughs> Everything has to, you know, disclaimers. <laughs> What's this message about? This message is about a vision, and the vision is John 14, 30. The ruler of this world is coming, and he's got nothing in me. In the next several weeks, we're going to identify some of the major devices of the enemy, some of the major buttons that he pushes in your lives, and some of the vices that correspond to those devices and how he uses them to destroy us. In the next several weeks, I believe you're going to get to the bottom of stuff that has been vexing you. And some of you have been struggling in your heart because you're like, man, how, how long have I been asking God to deliver me from this? 
It's a character issue, but you're thinking about it as a deliverance issue. In the next several weeks, you're going to learn how to submit specific areas of your character to God so that he can lead you to a place of Christ-likeness and freedom. You're going to learn how to get to the bottom of stuff that has vexed you and, and stuff that has strangled your heart and stuff that has, has tangled up your soul, has become stumbling blocks in your walk with the Lord. You're going to get to the bottom of it in this series. But I want you to start with the vision. And that vision is John 14, 30. The ruler of this world is coming, but he's got nothing in me. And embrace the invitation. Jesus, take me to that place of Christ-likeness where I am as you were and as you are. That I can say with you, the ruler of this world comes, but he's got nothing in me. Lord, whatever he's got in me, take it out of me. I might not even see what he's got in me, but you see it, God. Take it out of me. Just a closer walk with you. But listen, this is going to require you to make a decision to walk closer with Christ than you've ever walked. Only through incremental fellowship with Christ on a daily basis will your character be formed into his image. It's not imparted at an altar. There's not, not enough shandos in the world to develop your character. Your character, your Christ-like character comes from just a closer walk with thee. Granted, Jesus, it's my plea. Daily walking close to thee. Let it be, let it be. But in the process, you're going to have to do so in community. You're going to have to do so in community. Say, no, it's just me and Jesus. The first thing Jesus did was start a small group of 12 and said, you're going to love each other just as much as you love me. And you'll never be able to say you love me, but you don't love one another. Because if you say you love God, but you don't love your brother, you're a liar. And most of us, we don't have any brothers in the spirit. And so we can say we love our brothers, but you ain't even got none. The biblical picture of what it means, the brotherhood of the believers is the 12 disciples. The 12 disciples. Discipleship happens in community. And this is why... I've invited each and every one of you to create a small group. Some of you say, I, didn't ha I don't have a small group. Do it in your house. Sit down with your wife, your kids. Tomorrow morning, an email's gonna go out with a worksheet, with discussion questions following this message. You might have to take the message and listen to it again, but make a decision. The resolution is not to simply understand, but to resolve. John 14, 30, that's going to be my mantra. That's going to be my, that's going to be the meditation of my heart. The ruler of this world comes, but he's got nothing in me. He's got nothing in me. Jesus, I thank you that he's got nothing in you. Lord, strengthen me so that he's got nothing in me. You're not looking for an experience and then go home and see if it worked. That's not what it's about. It's about going home and walking with Jesus and walking with Jesus and then being vulnerable in community. Walking with Jesus and being vulnerable in community. Walking with Jesus and being vulnerable in community. Walking with Jesus and being vulnerable in community. And you know what happens? Your character grows. Suddenly you start to reflect his glory. Suddenly stuff starts falling off of your life. Stuff that you held on to. But it's not going to happen in an, a week or, or a month. It's going to happen over months and years. It, but it, it will happen. It will happen. It, you just keep walking with Jesus. You just keep walking with Jesus. It will happen. It will happen. And so often what happens is we resist that closer walk with Jesus because we're judging ourselves. 
We're judging ourselves. You know, I was telling somebody recently about, they were asking me about my relationship with my spiritual parents and my mentors. And, and I talked about how, yeah, like, yeah, anytime anything happens in my life and I need prayer, if I'm discouraged, I call them immediately. I'll call Pastor Daniels in a second. Sometimes he doesn't answer, I'll call Pastor Mike. If he doesn't answer, I'll call Ben Sigmund. If he doesn't answer, first I'll call mom or I'll call dad. I'll call my mom and dad. I've got a whole list. I'll call Bishop Kirby. And, I, and I'll go through them one by one. And I'll talk to one of them. And if I'm not free, I'll call the next one. And if I need more encouragement, I'll call the next one. And I'll call them back tomorrow. And they said to me, this person said to me, um, how do you know when you're overstepping their boundaries? Like, I just want to be careful not to. And I say, you know what? I let them tell me. I let them tell me. I assume that I'm good until you tell me, give me some space. <laughs> and I can sense their boundaries. When I sense them saying, okay, that's enough. <laughs> you know, what I, mean? I back, okay, I won't call you for another week, but I'm still coming back next week. You see, some of us sense God's displeasure, and so we banish ourselves from his presence. And you think you're doing him a favor. I don't want to bother him. So Peter said, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Just come and follow me. I will make you a fisher of men. Listen, I assume God loves me until he tells me otherwise. I assume God wants me in his presence until he tells me otherwise. I assume he's pleased with me until he tells me otherwise. I assume he's saying, come here, Benjamin, until he tells me otherwise. I assume I can run to him until he tells me otherwise. You need to make a decision. God wants you. He's calling you. He's drawing you. Let him tell you otherwise. Oh, and by the way, if he ever tells you otherwise, that wasn't God. Amen. 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 So bow your heads and let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time, for this moment that you brought us to as a congregation. Because in this moment, you're putting your finger on things that have vexed many of us for years and some for decades. And some of us have made a treaty with our vices because we've just assumed that because I can't get over it, it's just a thorn in my flesh. But Lord, I thank you that you're confronting that lie of the enemy. You're inviting us to a closer place of fellowship with you. And you're inviting us to come to faith in this invitation of Jesus. The ruler of this world comes, but he's got nothing in me. Lord, I pray today in the name of Jesus that a resolve would transpire in every heart Lord, I'm going to grow. Whatever it takes, I'm going to grow. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to come closer to you. Whatever it takes, I'm going to grow to that place where the ruler of the world can throw anything he wants. He's got nothing in me. He's got nothing in me. He's got nothing in me. Lord, I thank you that this is a day of hope. That this is the day of hope that you're saying to those who are fearful hearted, do not be afraid. For behold, the Lord your God with a strong and mighty hand he will come and save you. This is a day in which you're saying, strengthen the feeble knees and the arms that hang limp. This is the day that you're saying, let the weak say, I am strong. Let the poor say, I am rich. But you're calling us to respond. Just a closer walk with thee. You're calling us to respond. Vulnerability and community. That's the key and a closer walk with Jesus, incremental fellowship with Jesus over days, weeks, months, years, and decades. And your character will 
be transformed into the image of Jesus. You will become more like him in every way. And so, Father, I pray that you would place it in every heart to respond to this word. And I give you praise for it in Jesus' precious, holy, mighty name. Amen. Come on, give God a shout of praise.